Welcome to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, exploring leadership in nursing through inspiring conversations. Today's episode is sponsored by AACN's award-winning journal, AACN Advanced Critical Care, with information available at aacn.org forward slash ACC journal. Now here's your host, AACN's Chief Clinical Officer, Connie Barden. This is Connie Barden, and I'm excited and honored today to get to speak with Dr. Garrett Chan. Garrett is the president and CEO at Health Impact. Now, Health Impact is a California state-designated nursing workforce and policy center. And on top of that, Garrett, you're also um, associate adjunct professor at UCSF, University of California in San Francisco. So a very busy person who has managed to carve out time to talk. So welcome, Garrett. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Connie, for the invitation. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here with you today. Thanks. Well, I'm going to start with a confession, which is I'm going to totally take advantage of you today because you're going to be educating us on a topic about which I know very little. So I'm going to pick your brain and learn from you. And I think everybody who's listening will probably be pretty excited because I think what we're going to focus on and talk about mostly is something that many of us don't know a whole lot about. So we'll get to that in a second. But before we do, I'd love for people to kind of get to know you a little bit. And you've had a very interesting journey winding through your career as nursing. So do you have some uh, overview notes on that you want to share with us for starters? Sure. So um, I entered nursing kind of by accident. I thought I actually wanted to be a curator of a large museum. And uh, a career counselor said, you know, there are no jobs. So um, she asked me, did I like people? And I said, sure, I like people. And then she asked me if I liked science. And I thought, well, I've taken all humanities courses, but sure, I like science because I remember my high school and biology and chemistry teachers. And um, I said, sure, I like science. And so she said, well, how about a nurse? (laughs) And so uh, my father was an optometrist for Kaiser, and um, we would go visit him after school sometimes. And the nurses were these nice ladies who actually, you know, helped people. And I thought, I can do that. I can help people. And so that kind of launched me in my career. So or my my academic progression through nursing. So I went to San Jose State University in California. It's a state university uh, for my DSN. And then I did my master's as a clinical nurse specialist in critical care trauma and emergency um, at the University of California, San Francisco. I did my PhD um, also at UCSF. And I did that with Dr. Patricia Benner. Some of you may know Dr. Benner and her work, Novice to Expert. Um, although my dissertation was really looking at um, end-of-life and palliative care in the emergency department because I'm an emergency nurse. I'm also a member of AACN, too, so I'm <laughs> very proud of that. Yay, shout um, out. <laughs> yes, yay, shout out. <laughs> um, and then I did a postmaster's acute care nurse practitioner program. And um, my I held several nursing jobs, but um, my most recent um, long career uh, was at Stanford Healthcare, and I held several senior nurse executive roles. I was um, going backwards, the director of the Center for Education and Professional Development. I was the director of advanced practice, 
um, I was the first nurse scientist for the health system. And it was really fantastic. Um, Stanford is a really phenomenal place, a lot of innovation, a lot of creativity, um, and a lot of support for nurses. And at a certain point, I thought, you know, I love what I'm doing uh, within the four walls of this institution or this health system. Um, what about doing something outside? Um, and how can I help advance the health and well-being of a greater population um, and do it in an organization that was perhaps statewide? And so I applied to become the president and CEO of Health Impact and got the job in 2019, was trying to figure things out, and then the pandemic hit. <laughs> and fast forward, let's fast forward through the COVID years, and here we are today. Connie, thanks <laughs> for the invitation. Wow, indeed an intriguing journey. That's amazing. But I'm I'm so happy also to find another person who's an accidental person who wandered their way into nursing. My story starts very much similar to yours, although I wouldn't have been a curator at a museum, that's for sure. But uh, I was sort of pushed in that direction and somebody said, yeah, how about nursing? And here I am several years later. <laughs> so great, I'm not the only one. Now comes the brain picking because Garrett, what I know is you wrote an amazing article, co-authored an article on Nursing Outlook recently. And it's on this issue of national nurse identifier systems. And I really... Um, just want to dig in on this a bit because I and probably many people listening really want to be educated about this. So just for starters, what's the big picture of this whole system? We are hearing a lot of talk about it, but most of us don't know too much about it. Can you give us the overview? So I want to also give a little disclaimer. Until uh, my co-authors and I um, wrote this article, I was a bit of a novice myself around a national nurse identifier. Um, one of the first times that I heard about the national nurse identifier was um, in the unveiling of the Future of Nursing 2020-2030 report um, through the National Academy of Medicine. And in that report, um, they were talking about a national nurse identifier. And in doing a little bit more research, um, about that, I realized that our colleagues in nurse informatics have been working on this issue for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And they had some very advanced um, publications. They've done a lot of thinking around that. And um, so in this group uh, that came together to write this article about a national nurse identifier, um, started discussing the topic, we realized that there were a lot of things that nursing as a profession needed to understand. Um, we also needed to understand the benefits and potential um, drawbacks or challenges that um, something like this could pose for the profession. So we put together this, this article. Hopefully it's a thought piece to help the profession think through some of the issues as we continue to move forward in perhaps integrating the national nurse identifier in much greater ways um, for nursing. Yeah, makes sense. And um, I guess I would say as a, as a novice to this, why might we need one? I mean, what, what's in it for nursing or nurses 
uh, when we start out, what does it even mean? Am I going to get some fancy number and they're going to track everything I do and all of that? What's, what is the thing? Yeah. Um, before I answer that question, I think what would could be helpful um, for the listeners is the why. Why is this a thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, great. One of the things that we know is that there has been... Um, a use for a, a national identifier of some sort um, for a couple of different reasons that are already established. One of them is for billing. So many advanced practice nurses, but also registered nurses, um, can apply for a national pro- provider identifier um, th- to bill and uh, help the systems that use uh, billing data to identify us as um, providers of care. So commonly, it's all the national provider and identifier or the NPI, as people commonly understand it and know it, is very well known, especially to advanced practice nurses. But what nurses may not understand is that all nurses um, at all levels can actually apply for an NPI number. But again, it's really sitting in the area of billing and um, tracking within the federal government, especially through the uh, Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services. Well, the other already, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, well, that's item number one, is I think that most people don't know that a non-advanced practice nurse can even right now apply for this number. And sorry, I interrupted you. Please go ahead. No, that's quite all right. And it, it's a great reflection because... Um, it is not commonly known. Um, the other um, organization that has a nurse identifier is the National Council of State Boards of Nursing. Um, and they have a, a identifier to help with track licensure and people with a license. Um, and so this is a unique identifier that is assigned to each individual nurse um, RN and LVN and APRN um, in the country. And so it's been very helpful to have this type of number for us to, you know, make sure that there is this unique identifier for nurses who have multiple licenses in different states. The National Council of State Boards of Nursing identifier or NCSBN ID is um, already assigned, and people may or may not know it, but they can go to the NURSYS, N-U-R-S-Y-S, um, data, well, it's not a database, they can go to the website and they can find their number, um, their NCSPN ID number. Um, the ID number is generated by each individual state, and then that information is not necessarily housed within NURSYS, um, but it can track and be tracked across uh, jurisdictions. Well, that's fascinating. And I also count myself as uh, one who didn't understand that either. It makes perfect sense. Now, when you said earlier, nurses and APRNs can apply for the national nurse identifier that you were speaking about, that's different from the NCSBN number. Is that correct? Yes. So the NPI is a a number that any nurse can apply for through the Centers for Medicaid, Medicaid, Medicare Services um, 
and that's the overall agency that um, kind of manages uh, the number. Um, it's it's the database itself is called the Provider Enumeration System or NPPES. Um, and so the information is housed within NPPES, um, but the NPI is the actual number that is generated for the individual nurse. So what kind of data do these systems track? So let's pretend I put in my application to CMS. What are they going to be looking at? How do they get it? And that kind of thing. I'd be a little suspicious about that. <laughs> well, I think information that is uh, not so concerning at this point in time, uh, NPI, people have applied for NPI numbers for, you know, decades now. And so they want your name. They want the practice site that you're working at, like the business mailing address and the telephone number of the business. Um, they want to know what your license number is because they want to make sure they can cross-reference you to your state license. Um, so that's also something that's public knowledge. Um, they ask for gender, um, and they ask also what are the various um, types of nursing you nurse you are. They have a taxonomy um, or a listing of different types of um, categories that you can choose from. You can be you can choose RN, you can choose MP, you can choose clinical nurse specialist, you can choose certified nurse midwife. You can choose many different types of nursing within this taxonomy code, um, and that's generally the information that is collected uh, from the NPI. Now, the nurses, or I'm sorry, the NCSBN ID, um, they also have your name, full name, and they have license information. Like, is your license unencumbered? Is there, no, is there any problem with your license? Um, is there any information about denial of license? you know, if you've applied for it and you were denied for it in that particular state. Um, it, it gives expiration information. Um, it says whether you're on probation or you have a reprimand on file or there's a restriction or revocation or suspension. Um, so it gives you uh, information about the license of the person uh, who holds the license. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's either a little reassuring or unsettling to know that somebody's got an independent number on all of us anyway already through the State Board of Nursing. It's just common sense that they have to weigh up keeping track of all 4 million nurses who are in this country. Um, let me ask you this. You mentioned early on, and I think we'll probably dig a little deeper into this. You said one of the possible uses is for billing. Where do they get information that they would use for billing? I don't quite get that just yet. Yeah, so those people who have NPI numbers, um, we can understand what kind of services are being offered. Um, and I'm going to use the advanced practice uh, yep. case because it's probably the one that's most well known. Yes. Uh, so we can know, you know, generally what levels of, you know, care are being delivered because there's a um, ICD-10 code or a CPT code that is associated with that particular encounter. So we can see some of these, uh, because you're, you're submitting a bill um, or your organization will submit a bill on, on your behalf, um, your NPI number is connected to that. So those are some of the things that we can understand 
about the NPI and the, the practices, if you will, or what people are seeing um, at any given moment. Now, one thing that does create some confusion and really outside the scope of our paper is the issue around what's called incident two billing. T two is T O incident to the physician billing. Yes. This is for usually um, uh, uh, physician offices where the physician is billing on behalf of the advanced practice nurse or PA. Um, it gets reimbursed at a higher rate. It's 100% versus the 85%. Um, and so incident to billing, well, the NP or the APRN um, or the physician assistant for that matter um, is billing incident to that work that they do is hidden because it gets incorporated underneath the physician NPI. And so the NPI, uh, the bill goes out under the physician NPI as opposed to the individual APRN or the PA. Um, and so that's something that is hidden uh, and creates some problems because we don't know how much care is actually being delivered by APRNs and PAs um, in an incident to world. Mm -hmm. I've heard a lot of my advanced practice colleagues talk about that conundrum of incident to billing. Um, it's it's kind of hard to understand, but when you explain it, it makes it a little bit better. You know, one of the things you mentioned a second ago is uh, a bunch of people have been having these types of numbers for a number of years. Is nursing a little bit behind because we don't have a system like this, do you think? Well, you know, I think that goes back to the whole question of why are we, why do we need some number like this. And, you know, I think there right now in the time that we're living in, there are two big questions that we need to think through. The first question is a workforce question. Like, where is our workforce? Where are they working? What kind of services are they providing? How many do we need if we have a shortage? Um, and so workforce um, play an understanding workforce plays an important role in this concept of an identifier because it can help abstract the information and for us to understand, you know, how can we help support the workforce um, and where do we need the workforce to be? Then what kind of interventions or policies should we implement to improve um, the workforce situation mm -hmm. in any particular area? So that's kind of one important concept. And then the other very important um, national discourse right now is the question of value-based purchasing, value-based payments. Um, we're now trying to, well, <laughs> now, now over the past 10 plus years, we've been trying to move from fee-for-service, yes. which is you do a service, you, you provide a service, you get paid a fee, um, which encourages people to do more, perhaps not necessarily value added, and so you can get paid more, to now let's pay for quality, let's pay for value. And this value question or value equation really is rising to the forefront. And um, there have been many publications in Nursing Outlook um, around the concept of value in nursing that we need to start figuring out what are the nursing contributions and how do they drive value. And this is, um, as I understand it, the 
perspective of our nurse informatics colleagues who are really taking up this question um, in a very important and interesting way. Um, how do we understand the contributions of nursing? And so the having an identifier and attaching that to the work can potentially help us answer that question. Yeah, I'll tell you for probably not years, but decades of years, it has been a common theme amongst many of us in nursing that says, well, nursing is paid for because it's wrapped up in the room and board. How many times have we heard that? And you can't pull out, you can't distinguish, no one can articulate the value of the care that's provided by the nurse. So this is really what you're digging down to, is that if we ever hope to change that paradigm, we would need to have a system like this in order to quantify nursing work. Is that the gist of it? Yes. And I think for me, that absolutely is the foundation that we should stand on. And we also need to think through what are the intangibles? Because not all nursing is transactional. So what are the things that we also need to take in consideration as we're starting to define our value um, contribution? The intangibles, the things like support. We don't document necessarily. We might document our psychosocial support for patients and families. That has immense value and yet not necessarily captured through documentation. Amazing. Those intangibles are a huge piece that I think none of us know really what to deal with. Um, one thing I do know about this topic is not everybody's on board with the concept. So can you share with us a little bit about the people who are, you know, not on board, skeptical, just plain old not supportive? What are they concerned about with a system like this? Do you have any clue on that? There are some questions that we raise in the article. One thing is about the article, which is a little bit unique, um, is that we as an author group decided we wanted to look at three national, you know, systems that have a unique identifier to help us understand what are the issues that we need to take into consideration as further discussions and policies are developed for a national nurse identifier. And so we looked at the American Medical Association Physician Master File. Um, the Physician Master File was created in 1906, and it was a record-keeping mechanism or method to support membership and mailing activities um, of physicians uh, by the American Medical Association. Um, then it kind of evolved over time, and they added additional information around um, education and where were people getting educated, and when did they graduate, where is their practice, um, and what are their state license numbers, the NPI, the Drug Enforcement Agency registration status, um, and other information, which is really interesting. Um, one of the other things that we learned in trying to analyze the American Medi Medical Association Physician Master File was that third-party organizations can access the master file for a fee, um, including research institutions, governmental agencies, professional medical organizations, universities, and other health-related groups. 
Um, and the AMA has uh, mechanisms for data database licensing contracts and royalties um, through this master file. So one of the things early before 2006, the physician master file um, was also available to sale for pharmaceutical companies for direct marketing purposes. Um, however, there was a major concern of physicians about privacy. Um, and so there are uh, ways to opt out of the um, AMA master, physician master file. So thinking about the first question is, arises from privacy, yeah. right? How do we think through privacy issues um, as it relates to a national nurse identifier? Another database that we looked at was um, the National Practitioner Data Bank. So for APRNs, uh, people may know this. Um, it's a way to, it's a repository um, of reports that are related to or connected to medical malpractice payments and certain, certain adverse acts. Um, and so if there was a lawsuit that was brought against um, a particular practitioner, um, it would be um, reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank or NPDB. Um, and so um, that, that serves as a, as a repository. Um, it's very important to keep, we do want to be able to share the information sensitively, but also very respectfully um, and not make it available to the public per se, um, because we, we want to make sure that if people make mistakes, people can make mistakes and to err is human, right? Going all the way back to what, 1992 and the Institute right. of Medicine report, right? So people make mistakes, but that should not always define who they are, especially if they've gone through remedi remediation, right? We want to be very, cautious and we do need to have this information. It needs to be respectfully um, accessed um, and the data should be held very confidentially and only to make um, informed decisions um, around um, employment or around giving privileges um, and credentialing providers in an organization. So that was another uh, again, privacy concern that we had as we looked at the NPDB. And then the third database that we looked at that we've written about in the article, and Connie, you as a critical care nurse will totally uh, resonate with this, and as well as perhaps the listeners on this podcast, is we looked at Apache, so the Acute Physiology and Chronic Health Evaluation um, Database. And for those people who have been around some time, and I've been around perhaps longer than I should, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> we had a tool called Apache 2, which was a free database intended to use, uh, be used as a qualitative or me, a quality improvement tool. And for many years, it became the gold standard for quality of medical and surgical care monitoring um, and for 20 years, they had over 2,000 peer-reviewed scientific articles that used Apache and Apache 2. Because of some issues that we write, we identified um, in the article, uh, there was uh, the movement to Apache 3, which mm -hmm. became a private um, organization. And um, because of this um, 
privatization, um, one of the things that we realized is that it did um, splinter the centralized database and it created other databases. And it created us, because it was now private, then people were looking for other ways to quantify the severity of illness, the morbidity and the chance of mortality. Um, so we end up with different other tools um, to help us that were freely available. Um, but for many, many decades, we did rely on Apache and Apache 2 as kind of a central database for us to understand how to um, perhaps to risk stratify across different organizations mm -hmm. and understand how ill our patients were using a common um, terminology and taxonomy. Wow, so much. And I got two dozen other questions to ask you and we don't have hardly much time left. So I wanna um, I'll ask you, this might be an unfair question. So you sort of got into this thing with some really smart people wanna write this article about national nurse identifiers. Admittedly, you said you didn't know all that much about it, but you certainly are an expert now. After everything you've learned, where do you land? Would you consider yourself more of a, hmm, this is interesting, I might be a proponent or I'm not so sure. How did it all sort out for you? And what makes you either excited about where you landed or hesitant about how it all turned out? To ramp up to the answer of that question, one of the things that the author group was very interested in exploring and is in the latter part of the article was now that we're moving toward forward with this, it's a national recommendation, there are groups that are working on this, how will this have an effect? What is the intended and the unintended consequences of this? So the intended consequences are all the things that I mentioned earlier, things like understanding the workforce and understanding payments and value of, uh, of nursing, which are important questions that we need to engage in. We know at the same time as we were writing this article that there were a lot of discussions around the Redonda Vought case. Um, for those listeners who are not familiar, this was a nurse um, in a health system in Tennessee that um, gave a wrong medication that led to the death of a patient. Um, and unfortunately, for whatever reason, the case was brought forward um, as a criminal suit for criminal, criminal negligence. And so this kind of, again, started us thinking about what are, what are the unintended consequences of a national nurse identifier. Also in our recent history that continues today is the question around um, reproductive justice and abortion services. Mm -hmm. And if a particular individual can be tied to a particular um, procedure, what will that do and what are the implications of that? And we need to think through that. And then the third piece is what about diversity? And with uh, nurses who are from underrepresented minority groups, whether that's race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, um, what are some of the implications? Are any of those data going to be collected? Um, how can that harm? How can that help? 
And so while we don't necessarily have all of the answers to these questions, we, we pose these questions in the article for the nursing profession and the community to continue to engage in this discourse so that we can protect everyone and advance the important work that we need to do for workforce and for value-based care. So for me, we're already on the road. I already have a NCSBN ID number attached to me. Mm -hmm. um, I already have an NPI, given that I'm a, an advanced practice nurse. Um, so there are already identifiers to me. So how do we continue to shape the conversation as we move forward um, so that we can protect privacy, we can ensure that there's equitable care, we don't disenfranchise um, populations of nurses who have traditionally um, and historically been discriminated against so that we can um, make this as equitable and supportive as possible. Well, I, I just want to wrap up with a couple of comments, Dr. Garrett Chan, who has been given so generously of your time. First of all, let me just clarify. One of the things you said is, might have been around longer than I should. And the answer is no, I am so glad <laughs> you've been around however long you've been around. And I hope you intend to stay because you are such a master educator on this very important topic. You've just outlined for us a lot of the pros, a lot of the cons. You've made it clear, guess what? We're already on the road. So I'm, I'm really comforted that there are people like you who are so mindful and smart and aware and looking to learn about this, who will help us, meaning nursing, look at the intended and the unintended consequences. Because like you said, the train has left the station. I would say we may be a little bit behind in nursing. We need to have this conversation. And so in your work um, at Health Impact and all the other stuff that you do, um, I'm just really grateful and probably on behalf of many nurses that folks like you are willing to look at this in such a balanced manner. And uh, I'm particularly grateful that you took some time today to talk with us in this podcast so we can at least have some beginner level knowledge on this. And we may call you back to do uh, second level knowledge in the future, Garrett. Thank you. Thank you so much, Connie. It was really a pleasure. And it is an evolving conversation. So I would love to come back um, if you think your listenership is interested. That'd be beautiful. Thank you so much, Garrett. Thank you so much, Connie. Thank you for listening to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, proudly sponsored by AACN's award-winning journal, AACN Advanced Critical Care, with information available at aacn.org forward slash ACC journal. We welcome your thoughts on this episode or ideas for future topics. Feel free to email us anytime at podcasts at aacn.org.